0: six to the end and I'll read and then we can go to God in prayer. No one knows about that day or hour not even the angels in heaven nor the sun but only the father as it was in the days of Noah so it will be at the coming of the son of man for in the days before the flood People were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he, bring, he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping a gnashing of teeth. Let us pray. Father, we come before you once again in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who spoke these very words to his disciples who were in need of comfort and guidance and strength as he approached the cross to eventually leave them We come before you now on the other side of the cross as those who know and believe that not only did Jesus go to that cross and die in our place for our sins, for the sins of whoever believes in him, but he also rose again and has ascended to your right hand. And this is the only reason that we can approach you as your children, to ask of anything. So we praise you for who you are. We praise you for what you have done in Christ and for the fact that He will come at an unknown time to complete the work that He has already secured through the cross, through His perfect life and death and resurrection to bring an end to this world that we are pilgrims in to bring an end to the existence of sin and sadness and sickness and death we praise you because none of us is worthy to even know any of these things none of us deserves your grace and we truly deserve your wrath your justice we don't deserve your love but in Christ, you have given your love and all the blessings that we can't even fully express or understand. You've given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So as we continue to look to you at this time, giving you thanks for what you have accomplished in your son. May we be strengthened In the faith, if there's any listening to my words this morning who do not trust in Christ as yet, would you bring strong conviction to their hearts? Holy Spirit, I ask you to use the very word that you breathed out through the apostles and the prophets, this foundation of the church. Would you speak to the hearts and minds of Even one this morning who is still rejecting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Would you show them the grace of God in him? And work in their hearts that they would not only see but embrace him as their Lord and their Savior. Nothing else matters apart from this. Would you cause that those of us who are believers who came here this morning as your sons and daughters... That everything that I say would only strengthen us all the more. That would build us up in the faith. And would you help me to be faithful to your truth. Not just these words in Matthew's gospel, but everything else that is explaining, is is describing you and your truth this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me. For those of you who perhaps, if anyone came in or tuned in while I was just praying, uh, we're in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 24. Excuse me. And the sermon uh, titled this morning is taken from Few of the different verses that we just read through, chapter 24, verse 36 through 51. I've entitled this sermon, Stay Alert. Stay Alert. Again, Matthew begins his gospel by describing quite clearly for us the very purpose of Jesus coming to earth. When you read a a text that I believe uh, I may have mentioned on Christmas uh, Day, it definitely will be as we come to the end of this gospel, which is Matthew chapter 121, when the angel told Joseph about the, the son that was in the virgin Mary's womb that had been conceived by the Holy Spirit without normal intercourse, the virgin conception. The angel tells Joseph, you will name him Jesus. You will call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And so from the get-go, Matthew is evangelizing. He's making clear the very purpose for which Christ became flesh. And Jesus has gradually been teaching in these discourses things that were quite shocking. In the Sermon on the Mount, he shows that, that true religion, the true Christian faith, those those who are in true covenant union with God is about the religion of the heart not just things that we perhaps sometimes get right externally and that are apparently good and pleasing to the Lord but it goes deeper than that he teaches things like the beatitudes and the sermon on the mount and then he he, he says things to the Pharisees the religious leaders of the day to do with tradition They had added these traditions to initially attempt to keep God's law a little bit better. As if we in our flesh could accomplish that. And By the way, if we could, there would have been no need for Christ to come in the first place. But Jesus, when they ask him the question, why don't you keep the traditions of our elders in chapter 15? He responds by saying, and why don't you keep God's law? So there are shocking things that Jesus has been telling his disciples. And I encourage you to read through this gospel and be reminded of them. Maybe see them in a fresh way and see them in a way that I can't fully explain once a week. Even with the best attempt. There's so much in here. But when we come to this Olivet Discourse, as it's called, I just want to remind you that this entire discourse, these two chapters, are a response privately given To his followers. This was not one of the typical public teachings. So come back to the beginning of chapter 24. And at the end of uh, actually chapter uh, 23. Jesus makes this statement. Before he has this private discourse with his disciples. He says these words publicly. In the temple. Look your house is left to you desolate in, in verse 38 of chapter 23. Your house is left desolate. This house, which was the temple he was referring to, he describes the very temple of God, the, the heartbeat of the nation of Israel, his old covenant people now. That that, that is desolate, barren. And then he goes on in, in the next few verses, we see Jesus leaves the temple. And I mentioned that um, just like we, we see in the Old Testament, there's an account of um, the Canaanites capturing, or the enemies of God's people, capturing the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, one of the messengers brings a message to the priest at the time, and he hears that the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant is captured, and he falls down and dies in shock at this idea that the, the one thing that was at the very heart of the heart in the Holy of Holies, this Ark of the Covenant which contained the Ten Commandments and the budding staff of Aaron and some manna. This thing which was in the place where the presence of God was manifested. hear all sorts of songs about presence being made today. Well, for them, this is the, the one representation of that. And it shocks him literally to death to hear that his sons have died, but more importantly, that God's glory has been captured. And the, these things are shadows of the reality that we see taking place when Jesus says that this house is desolate. That that's also flowing over into the entire religious system. And then these words Jesus left the temple. And as they're leaving the disciples were were astounded by this concept. What do you mean this temple? Of God is desolate and they try to turn him around they say "Um, look you know look at these wonderful buildings look at this structure consider this and it says that they were trying to call his attention in chapter 24 verse 1 they wanted Jesus to look at the wonder of this building of these 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 big stones that took a long time to put the temple together and Jesus says do you see all these things Not a single one will be left here. They will all be destroyed, all thrown down. And so the disciples come up to him and say, When will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus begins to respond in what is called the Olivet Discourse. You see there in verse 4, Watch out that no one deceives you. And so we, we considered um, that there were three main warnings in those four, first 14 verses. Do not be deceived. Right? Or do not, do not be led astray. Do not be alarmed when you see even basic natural disasters like earthquakes and other things like that. And wars and the natural effect of sinfulness. Do not be alarmed or shocked. Which is our natural response. If we're going to just be real about it. Pretty much every week. If not every day. I just can't believe that such and such happened. And Jesus is saying. Do not be alarmed. This is the world we live in. And then he says. Towards the end of that first section there. That we looked at. Don't let let your love grow cold. He mentions the fact that. In that day many people. Verse 12. The love of most. Will grow cold. And the focus here, again, he's responding to his own disciples. The focus is not just the world, the entire world, because that is an obvious thing. Even people who claim to know what love is. He's not focusing on, on the world primarily, although that's, that's there. And then we see later in, in verses 15 through 35, we looked at that last Sunday where he speaks about the abomination that causes desolation. We talked or considered a little bit about how that was originally understood by the majority of Jews and scholars, I think, to this day. That Daniel's prophecy was speaking about the destruction of the temple before the one that they were looking at, that they were in, that had been rebuilt. And Jesus is saying that there is another destruction coming and that the Romans in 70 AD came and wiped out this temple to such a degree that you almost, Josephus, a historian, a trusted historian, said you almost couldn't find where this temple stood. That's how severe the destruction was. But I also mentioned that Jesus is actually building us as his temple. The kingdom of God is not made of bricks and concrete, wattle and dove, silver thatch, you name it. Not man-made materials. But every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, we have become this spiritual temple that he is building up. And there's different, um, you know, descriptions that Matthew gives us. One of the major themes is the kingdom of God. We are ourselves the kingdom of God. We're not waiting for this kingdom to start being built. There is a greater manifestation of it that will come. But we are now the spiritual kingdom of God. And again, to be clear, when I say we, I'm speaking about those who are born again, who are repenting and trusting in the gospel and in Christ alone. For the forgiveness of their sins. But Jesus has also said something shocking along with all these details. Shocking about himself. Remember, since the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden, since we sinned against God, we were cast out of his presence. But now God himself has come to man. Emmanuel, God with us. And these disciples had been eating and drinking with God incarnate. But then they hear him say something three times. Three times he repeats it. He says that the Son of Man, his favorite title for himself, he will be handed over to the rulers in the synagogues. He will be handed over for the purpose of being killed, being put to death. And he will be mocked and he will be flogged. And then eventually the third time he says this, but then he adds in, he'll be crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Now that would have been shocking for them. Because he's at one and the same time talking about this kingdom that he's building. But then he's saying that he's leaving them. They had this concept that when the Messiah came, he would have stayed, set up shop, taken over the Romans and anyone else who stood in the way of God's kingdom And God's glory and not left them that's the idea that they had developed it was never the plan though this is why he holds the Pharisees who were the only people at that time that had the word of God accessible to them to share either the truth or falsehoods that's why he holds them to such a high standard and corrects them so often And so as he's getting ready to go to Calvary in this Olivet Discourse, he's saying, stay alert. And eventually we'll see in the coming chapters where he says the same thing in the Garden of Gethsemane in a much simpler way. He says, watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. And so, again, the sermon is entitled, Stay Alert have five points for us to consider today. The first is this, the sovereign plan of God, which I've already started to display in some of the things that I've just said. Secondly, the submission of the Son. Thirdly, the same days as the days of Noah. Fourth, the call to stay awake, not woke. And fifth, the faithful few and the final judgment. So let's look at this first point. The sovereign plan of God. Look with me again at verse 36. No one knows. Let me say that a little more slowly. No one knows about that day or hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Hmm. No one knows. As I mentioned, Jesus makes uh, a lot of statements about things that are going to happen here. And the Bible actually is filled with what is known as prophetic literature. And if you are someone that pays attention to the media and the news, and the Christian media in particular, and you're listening to what people are talking about, you'll hear all kinds of different, I guess what you could call... Um, all kinds of camps, like little Christian cliques. They're, they're genuinely Christian. There's some that are saying, Lord, Lord, that are not Christian, but I'm not talking about that. There's genuine Christians that have differences about how the end times will work out. What's your view of things like the millennium? What is your view of what maybe in your mind you're thinking This has to happen, and then this has to happen, and then the Son of Man will come. I was having a conversation recently with a dear, dear, dear friend, someone that's very close to me. And we were chatting about, well, we we weren't initially, but we ended up chatting about this topic of the millennium. And certain events that are taking place, like the Third Temple being built, And I just kind of paused, and I said, do you believe that Jesus could come back right now in the middle of our conversation? And without hesitation, this person said, no, of course not, because that has to be done first. You feel like that this morning? Did you... Let me, let me encourage you, if that's how you feel, whether it's the temple or, or whatever else it might be. I want to show you, I want to try unearth what is actually being said there. When you think like that, when you speak like that, what you're actually saying is the level of precision and accuracy and confidence in my interpretation of all these events that must take place before the sun returns is so good that I can't be wrong. That's actually what you're saying and thinking. If anyone under the sound of my voice found themselves thinking like the individual I'm referring to. But after I asked the question, and the answer was no because this, this, and that, and the other, I said... So let me just be clear to make sure I understand what you're saying. You're saying um, and I I just went back and repeated what, what the person said and I said so just before I go into any further detail you just said it's impossible for Christ to return at such a time as this. Now I just want to read the words of this verse again. No one knows. Now if you go to the Greek or the Hebrew or the latin or the aramaic or the arabic or you know what that's going to say and what it's going to mean no one knows it means no one has the human capacity to clearly and determinatively know that christ cannot come back at this moment and it is because of even with the best of intention it is because of removing that simple reality that a lot of urgency, perhaps, might be removed from some of our minds at times. Some of our minds, some of our groups, some of our churches, some of our ministries. It's also because of wrong thinking about this verse, I believe, and similar, similar verses that talk about the immediate second coming, that a lot of energy and money and time and resources in people's lives are maybe prematurely pushed towards hastening that second coming by making sure that these various different events take place. And I'm not making a judgment right now, but I'm just trying to do my best to be observational. But again, no one knows. And here's the deal. Jesus knows that his disciples' hearts are becoming troubled. You remember in the upper, the upper room? In John 14, where he has another private discourse with them that we're eventually made clear about. In John, when John shares with us about that upper room discourse, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Because our hearts get troubled as we're waiting. And so in the midst of all the different things that Jesus is saying, notice what Jesus is doing to give comfort and confidence and resolve. He is not asserting our understanding, our wisdom, our strength, or our abilities. He is making it as boldly and as clearly, plain as He can, the sovereign plan of the Father. For He says, not even myself knows. I think that's probably the most shocking thing of all in this verse. If you're a person who truly believes in Jesus Christ. And to believe in Him in a saving way means to understand that He is one person who exists or continues now with two persons. He's one person, but he, he continues with two natures. There is the uncreated, eternal nature of the Son. We're told in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him, that is Jesus. And without Him was not anything made that has been made. Anything you see and can't see this morning, molecules that we can't even, things that are too small to go under a microscope, were made through Him. And that's speaking about Jesus, because in verse 14, John goes on to say, And the Word became flesh, meaning he took on a human nature. And to to believe in Jesus means to believe in the complete deity of Christ, and without mixing those two natures, the humanity of Christ. Not our humanity with sin, but as it was in Adam before sin entered. That's why the Bible calls him the last Adam. But with all that said, even so, he says, in my humanity, in myself, in my personhood right now, as I'm speaking to you, I don't know. Is that a challenge for you? To not know what the future holds? I think it is for all of us. Especially when things are getting uncertain, when we're feeling more resistance. As Christians, I'm thinking about particularly. But what does he say here? He's he's both teaching and showing by example. Because remember, knowing the future for Christ, you ever felt like, if I know the future, maybe it'll be easier? Well, imagine if you knew that the end of this week resulted in you being nailed to A tree. Would that simplify your life? I don't think so. But this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, shows us that you can find courage and comfort in something that we all struggle with because of our sinful pride. The sovereignty of God. This is the God who spoke the world and the galaxies into being ex nihilo, out of nothing. But he's showing us that God's sovereignty in Christ, by the Spirit, is both transcendent, it is is above our understanding, but it is imminent. It is down in our everyday nitty-gritty of our lives. And so, in the midst of this discourse, in the midst of this final lesson, he says, you need to believe in the sovereignty of God. What is your view of God's sovereignty? How sovereign is the God in your mind this morning? We cannot worship God beyond our belief and acceptance of this concept of the sovereignty of God. What does Genesis 1.1 1, 1 say? In the beginning, God this is the uncreated God. You could say so much more. But secondly, he, 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 first he, he asserts the sovereignty of God. But in that very same verse, we see secondly the submission of the Son. Because again, the sovereignty of God and the plan of God for Christ, who made it clear he knew what God's plan was for his life, meant going to the cross. Meant bearing the penalty of the sins of his people. And what does Christ do? He submits to the Father. And, and again, just in case there's someone listening who doesn't believe in this true God. If you don't believe in the Trinity, I didn't say if you understood it fully, that's impossible. But if you reject the concept of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you don't believe in God. It is from eternity past that the Son, who is equal with God in nature, has actually been in a position of submission. Think about it. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Yes, the Father gave, but the Son submitted. Just like He submitted when the Father spoke and said, Let us make man in our Likeness In our image He submitted Willingly Even to death on the cross As Philippians 2 says The submission of the son And I know this is a bad word for some people today It's like the S word Authoritarianism has Caused people to run to the other extreme But submission is a beautiful thing you want to see one of the most beautiful pictures of submission? Behold the Lamb of God. Submission is so beautiful it can, and, and powerful. It can accomplish the very salvation of God's people. So just a word to you, brothers and sisters who are married. Ladies, don't buy in. To the modern day ideologies that would encourage you to hold a posture that is not submissive in your lives. You can be a strong woman without being a rebellious woman. And if there's any sort of pushback in your heart, that's not a godly strength. If there's any pushback against this concept in the Bible of submission that has to be renewed, transformed. All of us must submit to God. In fact, the very call to the gospel is repent and believe. And Jesus is saying, submit your mindset. Submit your very thinking to the will of God. So we see the submission of the son and his attitude in the way he's pointing his disciples to the father and walking to Calvary. Even in this teaching. In John 6.37, Jesus makes this clear. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. John 8.29, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. This is how we too experience the presence of God in our lives, by Understand, understanding our identity in every sense of that word, according to what God has said in his word, and submitting to his will, according to that. Thirdly, uh, look at what he points out in terms of the times that his disciples are entering. As I mentioned, ever since the resurrection, which is after this point where he's speaking, but after the resurrection... They entered into a final age of human history. The last age, I would say. And I know there's differences of opinions on these things again, but I said as best as I could understand it, I think we're living in the tribulation. That doesn't feel as meaningful to those of us who live in the Cayman Islands, obviously. We have pretty much almost no opposition compared to some. Um, But in any case... I think our days are very similar to Noah's days. See what he says there in verse 37 through 41? As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. I want to just make a comment here on verse 39. When he says there, they knew nothing about what would happen. We're told elsewhere in Peter's, one of Peter's letters, that Noah was actually a herald of righteousness. That, that, That Noah was... Clarifying to as many as could, you know, hear, Noah was making it clear what he was doing. He's building this ark because a flood of God's judgment is coming. And the people were rejecting and mocking and living as if nothing would happen. So when Jesus says to his disciples, they knew nothing about what would happen. He's not saying that they hadn't been warned. If you follow what I'm saying here, it's like today when Christ returns. Most of the people in these shores, for example, will be will not be able to say, I didn't know that there was such a thing as God. I didn't know that there was a man named Jesus Christ, and I didn't know that he's the only savior and judge of the world. And let it, let it be our prayer that if there are some who are in these shores that don't know, it's, it's not on our hands. You see, we are held, we're held responsible for that in our workplaces, in our families, in our communities. May God help us to be faithful, not just to live well, but to be those who proclaim what needs to be known. But what Jesus is saying here is they had no idea the severity of the coming judgment the swift and complete judgment of the entire human race. This is what they had no idea would take place. Maybe they thought, oh, this, glo- this is not going to be a global flood. Oh, I know how to swim. Maybe they thought something like that. <laughs> Maybe they were comparing God's, God's judgment and justice to our human ways. But of course his ways are not like our ways. And there's an old Sunday school hymn or song that it sounds a little prettier than the picture. And only eight were saved. Well that's that's straight from the Bible. The rains came down, the floods came up, and and, and water gushed forth from the ground. And Christian, don't be deceived. By false teachers. It is our command from the Bible based on the way God has spoken to us to believe in a global flood. To believe in creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. You notice that Jesus continually goes back to the beginning. And draws his examples from creation. From the flood. From the Tower of Babel. He doesn't speak about these things as stories. He shows everyone, even the children listening. Children, are you listening this morning? He shows them that this is history that we are dealing with. And is this not the attitude of some of our friends? We were talking about and praying about all the fighting in schools. How are you going to answer questions like that? Why is this happening? Well, first of all, it is somewhat alarming, but don't be alarmed. Those children, and if, this, if one of them is, is yours, I ask no forgiveness. They're wicked in their hearts. They're sinners in need of complete transformation by the gospel, which can be the only thing that changes their hearts. It can take a person who, whose life and mouth is filled with foulness, and clean it up. I'm not the ultimate example, but I'm one of them. I wouldn't be talking to you this morning without expletives beep beep, if that wasn't true. The gospel and the gospel alone is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. And that is something that those children and that our community at large needs, and that homes and parents need. To know how to guide their children. And the teachers need every one of us. But for the most part, this is how we are living. As if nothing was going to happen. And you would swear that people disbelieved in every single historical fact that God has made clear from the Bible. Based on how we're living today. belabored that point but it it leads right into the next one just like I said stay alert Jesus also says stay awake fourthly stay awake not woke children parents all listeners you have heard this term stay woke there is nothing in this modern ideology of wokeness and I have no quotes or anything I'm just going to describe it as I see it. There's nothing godly or Christian at all in it. The concept of of wokeness is the opposite of what Jesus is calling for from his followers. Why? Because it's an ever-changing, indescribable, complete revision of everything. Let us go back and revise the meaning of men and women. The meaning of what the Bible says is race. There's only one human race. There's different languages and tribes and tongues. There's different ethnicities. There's beauty and complexity and and there's distinctions among us. um, All represented by, if I'm not mistaken, something like 0.01 or such a small percentage of difference amongst us. Why? Because we all come from the same two people, Adam and Eve. Well, someone might say, well then, why do we live all over the world, and why do we speak all these different languages? Answer, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. We all spoke one language, and, and, and by our own humanity, when we tried to use it for some kind of unity in our own wisdom, what did we do? We built a tower instead of spreading out and subduing the earth and having proper dominion so that we could be like God high up in the heavens. And God brought us down and scattered us. How? By giving us different languages. And what does God do in Pentecost? He recreates a new unity from a new Adam. The final, the last atom of a new humanity, i.e. the church. And the day of Pentecost, you can see this in Acts 2, the Spirit of God comes down and starts giving the gift of tongues. It's one of those special revelation gifts that God no longer needs to use in our day. He gives the gift of tongues for the purpose of spreading the gospel in every language to accomplish true unity. You cannot accomplish unity through any political or social strategies. Why am I bringing this up? Again, some of the language in these ideas that you see on the news, that you see in books, that our children are going to start hearing in books at school, we need to understand that it's a bunch of rubbish. It's a pile of lies. It is deception. And it is using scripture from here and scripture from there and putting it together. This is what Satan does. He's a great deceiver. That's why Jesus begins this whole thing by saying, don't be deceived. You know what's included in the the concept of wokeness? Let's revise, um, again, what is gender? What is marriage? What is the meaning of life? All of a sudden, we want to play God now and say, we know that life doesn't begin at conception. But that was a lie. You know why? Because the same people who used to say that have gone on to say, okay, okay, we do know that life begins at conception. But it's the woman's right to do with the image of God in her womb what she will. Okay. Dear Christian, that's the same thing as saying she has a right to commit murder. Abortion, the alphabet soup group, LGBTQA plus, plus, minus, subtraction, division, all of that. Macro evolution, the concept of Darwinian evolution. Children, you have two options to believe. Either you believe we were made in the likeness and image of God to rule over monkeys or you actually will believe you're a monkey. And that is far worse than any other sort of monkey business. It is truly foolishness. That's why Jesus is saying to his disciples here to keep, watch, stay awake. And as I said in, in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, watch and pray, we have to do these two things. How do we watch? Again, I said it, not primarily by watching CNN or Fox or your favorite one or even by reading other books. I want you to see a very good example I'm going to show you. This is how we watch. For those of you who are listening on the radio, I'm holding my Bible up and now I'm looking down at it. And now I'm putting my head up and now I'm closing my eyes to pray. Watch and pray. We need to learn how to interpret the world around us through the lens of the Bible. But what is happening too much now in the church is that people are allowing the world around them to become the lens by which they interpret the Bible. That is Antichrist. That is Anti Great Commission. All of these things and others that we could talk about. Remind me of a wonderful tool that I learned about in the year of our Lord, 2020, August 26th. It's this thing called white noise when my daughter was born. You ever heard about white noise? I was trying to look up a good description. It's just a whole bunch of different high-frequency sounds that, that form together to make this sound. But do you know what happens? against all crying, against everything in the power of that child. If you do this long enough, shh, shh. You know what happens? The child falls asleep. This is what Jesus is saying to His church. Stay awake. Don't be put to sleep by the white noise of wokeness or anything else. You want to understand reality? You look back through the word of God at everything that he has done in history to this point and to stay faithful that's why he goes on to in verses 42 through 45 through 51 he goes on to talk about the faithfulness and the final judgment notice in those verses who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time it will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will be put he'll put him in charge of, of all his possessions. This is a picture of just how gracious and giving God is. Can you imagine that after thousands of years of us failing to live perfectly, failing to live as we should, of only having Jesus Christ as our substitute in our living, in our dying, because even after we become believers, no one achieves sinlessness. After thousands and thousands and however long it is, because remember, no one knows that day, (laughs) however long it is to the end of time, God is so gracious that He will not only bring us into a new heavens and earth, but He will let us reign with Him. Can you imagine? Do you see how this one man Christ Jesus came to accomplish the complete redemption of everything that was taken away in the Garden of Eden? No longer will sin or Satan be able to, to stop that command to subdue and have dominion for God's glory and our good. Because we will reign with him. But this is a primary, I think the primary focus in these verses that Jesus is speaking to all of us but in a sense in a particular way to people who are basically like myself and the elders of this church there's an especial weight and a, a unique responsibility privilege or judgment for those of us who are servants ourselves but don't help the other servants everyone else in the kingdom of God serve well And as I mentioned in the previous point there's going to be a lot of people on that last day who have led people astray who call themselves pastors who call themselves elders who call themselves whatever similar names you want to use that God is going to hold accountable. But Jesus is showing us here that we will be blessed for our faithfulness. However, he continues, but suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. <laughs> I have all the time in the world, or maybe you've heard people say something like this. I'm going to get right with God, but I just want to have some fun first. I just want to live my life. I just want to wait until X time. Then I'll, then I'll repent. That's heaping up judgment for yourself. If, if, if you reject Christ and you think God is okay with allowing you for the time being to reject His command to repent and believe in His Son. When, if, if that time comes when you repent, you will regret it. I can guarantee you, anyone, myself included, anyone who says, well, this is my testimony. I lived this long life of sin. I did all these things, and sometimes you hear what, what we often, and it's unhelpful to do this, but it's happening. Sometimes you say, "What a testimony." You know what the best testimony would be? I can guarantee you, I wish I never had my testimony. The best testimony would be, "My mother and father taught me the gospel, and at five years old, or however young, possible my conscience recognized that I am a sinner and that I need a Savior. And then I realized that Christ is the only Savior. And then I spent the rest of my life for the last hundred years following Him. That that is the best testimony that any of us can live and die with. Not this kind of attitude. And by the way, as you continue, you realize... I I found it strange there are some people who interpret this as two kinds of Christians and one just gets less reward. Let's read a little further and think about that. The words, my master, might be deceiving. Jesus here is using certain metaphors and picture language, which makes it sometimes confusing. But he says, my master is staying away a long time. And he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware. Look at this now. He will cut him to pieces and assign him, assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made it clear. We have it in our Bibles as Matthew chapter 7 verse 14. The way is narrow. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And few there are that find it. Jesus is directing, leading, guarding his disciples. And I I tell you this again. All of the, the kind of warning passages that we have in Scripture are twofold. On the one hand, they are used either to call a sinner to faith for the first time or to caution and goad us. You know the goads that you stick in a horse to make it run, go in the right direction? To goad us, to keep us on that straight and narrow. And also for those who choose to reject Christ, whether they do it openly as far as we can see or like many, Jesus says that same word many in chapter 7 of Matthew, who say, Lord, Lord, but are not really his disciples, at the end of all things, no one will be able to stand before God and say, I'm not worthy of your judgment. And this is what Jesus is telling us, ladies and gentlemen and children, the same Jesus who is so full of grace and mercy, who is the savior of all who will come to him and find rest, he will judge those who reject him. When you read Revelation and you see the picture of the second coming, it is an amazing picture and it is frightful. We have those in our families, we have friends, we have coworkers, we have people in our communities. Again, maybe some of you here this morning maybe some of you on Facebook, maybe some of you listening to the radio, you know that you can't say in your heart, I am a Christian. Well, I want to tell you this this morning. There's only two people, two kinds of people in this world. There's Christians and non-Christians. That's it. It doesn't matter what you look like, talk like, think like, smell like, (laughs) where you come from. You are either born again Trusting in Christ, in the kingdom of God. And by the way, God's child, the reason you have to be born again is because we're not naturally children of God. Or you are currently still rejecting him. And Jesus is making two kinds of promises. The one who endures to the end, he says in chapter 24, verse 13. I think it is. Yeah, the the one who who stands firm to the end will be saved. But those who are found to be professing servants who are not truly servants, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a description that he uses again, I think, at least once in this Olivet Discourse. It is a description of the agony of God's justice in hell. And if you struggle with that concept, I just want you to think carefully about this. Sin is so severe. The offense of our sin against the Holy God was so serious that it took the death of His perfect Son to make amends for it, to make atonement Nobody can bring anything to add to this atonement. If you try to add to Christ's work, you subtract from it. If you think you can subtract from it and do it in your own strength, you are the epitome of a prideful fool. And this will be your destiny. No matter what the reason is that you are rejecting Christ, this is the destiny of all non-Christians, non-believers. Of those who are not in Christ. You may not see this at. Any funeral. You may not see this. At most funerals. But I'm going to tell you this. Plain and straight. Unless you die in Christ. I've said this a few times. At funerals. The, the beauty of the Christian faith. Based on Jesus who looks to the thief on the cross, the the criminal on the cross, and says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. This very day. The other side of the coin is everyone who closes their eyes not in Christ. That very moment, this is the description of their eternal existence. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where do we stand this morning? This is the question that each of us needs to ask. This is how Christ is pointing his disciples to faithfulness. This is how we stay alert. You see that we need the gospel every day. The gospel is something not just to be saved by, but we need to constantly be a repenting people. That's why we forgive us today our debts <laughs> not just yesterday Jesus makes it clear we need that all the time but the beauty of the Christian faith is that God will never lose any of his sheep Jesus says in John 10 I am the good shepherd I know my sheep and they follow me and I will lose none of them because he came down from heaven to do the will of his father and the will of his father is that all who look to Him in faith, who come for for rest for their weary souls, they will be saved. And He will help us endure. So let's look to Him now for that very thing.